0: Hello and welcome back to Recover to Flourish, the podcast that aims to debunk all things eating disorder recovery and help you on your path to freedom. I'm your host Keandra Birnbaum and I'm a coach and I'm very active on social media with raising awareness about eating disorders and everything around that topic to bring some light into your journey and make you feel less alone. This episode is a special one. It's actually in collaboration with Meg McCabe. So she was on one of my episodes a little while back and I was invited onto her podcast. Her podcast is called Full and Thriving, which is also designed to support your recovery while helping you rediscover your radiant life outside of your eating disorder. So it felt like a right fit for us both to collaborate with both our podcasts And I'm going to bring you the episode whereby I was actually a guest, but I thought you might find it interesting too. And it's all about challenging your fear foods, why it's important, how to do it, and also tips when you don't have fear foods. What can you do to challenge, you know, variety? You might not have fear foods, you might have fear rules and um, behaviors that you do that are scary to challenge. So this episode is going to be really insightful Meg is also an eating disorder coach. She's an educator, writer and mental health advocate and also recovered from an eating disorder as I have. But I really hope that you find this episode useful and it will be more of a question and answer style to me. So don't get confused. We'll be back to the normal format next week, but enjoy the episode and I will speak to you soon.
1: Hello. Hello, Kiandra. How are you
0: today? I'm good. Thank you, Meg. It's absolute pleasure to be on your podcast. You were on mine and it seems like an age ago that
1: we did that episode. But yeah, I'm super excited to be here today. Oh, I'm so excited to have you here today. I love it. The tables are turned. I get to ask you all the questions this time, which is going to be so much fun. I know. And I think we're going to have a really kind
0: of insightful episode that's hopefully going to help a lot of you. So I'm ready to
1: answer your questions. (laughs) Well, let's just dive right in just to get started. For those who do not know who the amazing Keandra is, I'd love it if you could share a little bit about your eating disorder recovery story.
0: Okay. So I'm Keandra. As Meg mentioned, I am kind of Mid to late 20s now, which feels quite old, (laughs) which I know is not. I developed my eating disorder very early teens, actually, so a long time ago. I developed it and I'd had a history of being an overweight child, a happy child, but I was quite bullied within my school groups and social groups and and through a variety of kind of genetic, probably makeup there. was a perfect storm for me when I got into a group of friends, when I got into like about 13 or 14, who one of the girls had an eating disorder herself and it kind of was a recipe for disaster. I learned about dieting and weight loss and One thing led to another, which led to, unfortunately, kind of an eight-year battle with anorexia, which did include an inpatient stay for just under a year at one point. But when I got out of that and I recovered, I was able to kind of live a very happy and normal life. So I know that that's a very, very short, condensed version of I was an overweight child, I was bullied, I developed an eating disorder. There was a lot that had happened to get me to a place where I was recovered, you know, kind of eight years later, but that was kind of a concise journey.
1: Wow. Thank you so much for that. How did it feel to be in that eight year journey? Like, if you could pick an emotion to identify that, what would it be?
0: Arduous. Arduous. I know that sounds a bizarre word, but it felt long because at some points I thought, oh, I'm never going to get there. And also defining what getting there was changed. So arduous and like indescribable. It was that what destination am I going to get to? What is life going to look like when I don't have food, body image and exercise to obsess over?
1: Mm, You said that getting there, the definition of getting there changed. So did you arrive somewhere thinking it was recovery and then realize you had a lot further to go?
0: Definitely. And I would say, you know, I've done an episode on quasi-recovery and that was a place that I kind of sat at when I was in my college years. I'd recently been discharged from an inpatient service and nutritionally and medically rehabilitated, but I think my thoughts weren't fully there and it took me actually moving away. I lived on my own for two years and I got like a job kind of two hours away from my parents. And I was like around 17, 18 at the time. And I was like, oh, maybe this is not what life can fully offer. And actually having that independence from my parents, knowing I am responsible for myself and I have no one to kind of rely on. I was like, I could start living a lot better. And that was when kind of life opened up for me. And then the last kind of process happened. And, And with anything, it's checking in with yourself year on year and this is not necessarily in terms of like eating disorder wise, it's like, am I living
1: with my values? Am I giving myself what I need? Mm, I love that. It sounds like arduous, but beautiful journey that really opened up your world. And there was a lot of self-honesty there with just noticing the gaps and where you could keep moving forward. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. So Another question I had for you is during that process, what were some of the pivotal moments that you experienced? I think there's
0: two main ones that I can reflect on. One, when I was very, very early on in my recovery journey and I was physically quite unwell in hospital actually and my dad turned to me and it's one of the things I've said a lot and I think I want this as a tattoo, but I don't know where yet. (laughs) He said to me, what you put your attention on grows stronger in your life. And it's a quote that he always says to me. And at the time I was like, because I was a very negative mindset, I was like, never going to get better. This is awful. I don't want to carry on like this. And when he said that, I just looked at him and I thought, wow, I'm like 14. What am I doing with my life? And it's not that was a magic switch for me, but it helped me to reframe my thoughts at that point, And it helped me to kickstart my recovery That was a big turning point for me. You know, it was such a simple sentence that he said, but actually having that bonding moment with my dad and go, You're right. What you do put your attention on grows stronger in your life for good or ill, which helped me develop further. And I think as well, the next point that was big for me was I wanted to prove a point that I was sick enough, and that was through various things that, you know, I discovered with the National Health Service here in the UK and not being viable for treatment. I didn't fit the criteria at that point. Then I developed my eating disorder further and, you know, got sick enough and therefore was admitted into inpatient. But when I got there, I thought, well, I don't want to be here. This is not the environment for my recovery. Actually, being in a community environment was a lot better. So that was a pivotal moment because I was like, I don't want this eating disorder. I don't want this identity. This sick enough identity was something that I'd created. And I know it it felt so real, but actually what was I achieving through this? What was I getting out of being in that setting where I felt sick enough? And I think that's something that I say to everyone. It's like, don't wait until you're sick enough. Yes, sometimes services are unfortunately, very cutthroat with these are criteria, but that doesn't mean that you can't start recovery and it's not relying on other services to make you feel validated because it doesn't achieve anything.
1: Yeah, wow, that's really powerful. And I know so many listeners need to hear that is don't wait till you get to that point where the world can validate how sick you are, right? Some people never get to that point. And you don't want to be there. I'm so glad that once you got there, you're like, this is not for me. I need to actually get better. So it sounds like you ended up really reversing and that mindset. Definitely. And I think, you know,
0: sadly, it's not for everyone. Some people get trapped within wanting to be sick enough. But what I always reflect on is like, well, I've only, you know, within the weight restoration process that I went through, it's like, I was only gaining weight back that I should have never lost like, what did I achieve from all of this being, you know, losing weight, losing my identity? I lost everything. So, you know, I understood the role that eating sort of plays. Like I do get it. And I actually made peace with it. It's like that compassionate part with me, be like, you kept me safe, but I don't need you anymore. So what did I achieve from doing it? I maybe learned a lot about myself, but, you know, I could part ways with it and go, okay, but thanks for keeping me safe, but I don't need you now.
1: Mm-hmm. I like that practical lens layered on top of the compassionate lens. It's like, okay, I know I learned a lot from this eating disorder experience, maybe about myself. And also, what is the point of this and staying here any longer? And what did I gain from losing weight that I was just required to gain back? Exactly. Yes, very powerful. Those are really nice pivotal moments. I feel so inspired already. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I hope you get that tattoo because that is such a yeah. beautiful quote.
0: I've mm. been looking at it. I'm a bit of a tattoo addict, but a lot of times I say this to my clients about having a transitional object and having something that reminds me of why you're carrying on with recovery. And I remember the first tattoo I got, it was a bit naughty. I was 15 and I got a flower on my hand. My mum took me, so it was all approved. I didn't do it <laughs> behind my parents' backs, but I really want the tattoo because it does signify a lot between me and my dad as well and things that we've gone through in our relationship. But I want it in either Sanskrit, which is in the old Indian language, or I want it in Yiddish. I'm half Jewish, so... I think that's what I'll get it in because my dad's the Jewish parent. So Yiddish is his language and having it maybe somewhere on me would, yeah, be a powerful message. But
1: we will have to see. <laughs> uh-huh. I love that. I, I've always thought about tattoos. And one thing I thought about is getting, like, if it's a, something, maybe having your dad write it out and get his handwriting. yeah. If you saw my dad's
0: handwriting, you probably <laughs> couldn't even realize what it said. But I wish he had nice handwriting, but I hope he doesn't listen in the nicest possible way.
1: <laughs> Dad doesn't have chicken scratch handwriting anyway. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, well, that's a small little tangent, but I think I'd love to move on over to what we plan to talk about today, yes. which is... Fear foods and how to challenge your fear foods in eating disorder recovery. So let's just dive right into it. Could you please define what a fear food is? And could you share with us maybe examples, either from your own recovery or from your clients, of what like food fear might look like?
0: Okay. So I think in simplistic terms, a food fear is any food that causes emotional or physical anxiety related to it, really. Unless you have a sensitivity or you're allergic to a food, it shouldn't really cause any emotional kind of feelings to arise from it. So, for instance, I could give you an example of a fear food. And again, I want to make really clear that if you don't have fear foods in your recovery, that's totally fine. Not everyone does. Actually, everyone's fear foods look completely different if you do have them. But for instance, you know, one for me was... I'm trying to think back because I don't have it. It's really hard to think back because I'm like, I feared bagels. That was something that I feared at the time. Now, for reasons, probably through diet culture and various other things, but that was something that I really feared. And, you know, if it was on my meal plan or if something suggested it, I would gain that anxiety that provoked like, I can't do this. This is going to mean X, Y, and Z and having those thoughts come up. So. Really, in simplistic terms, a food fear is anything that you view that causes you to have thoughts that you can't eat it, not because you necessarily don't like it, but because you fear the outcome of
1: eating it. I think that's the best way. Yes. It. I think you did a really good job explaining that because you can actually really love fear foods. You just have the fear of eating it, right? So they taste good to you. When you're recovered, you actually really would want that food. But in your eating disorder, there are foods that you are afraid of. And then also you brought up a really good point, which is fear foods look different for everyone. And I don't know if you could vouch this from your end. I'm sure you can, but my client base, there are fear foods all across the board. Some people are Afraid of, you know, kind of the more typical fear foods, which are maybe like fried food or like carby food or whatever. But there are also clients I have who are afraid of vegetables.
0: For sure. And I think it's about negative associations that someone had created with fear foods, you know, and fears and things that could be, you know, in in anyone else's terms, well, that doesn't make any sense, but it makes sense to them. You know, actually, my range of fear foods were actually quite small. I had fears of other things that, you know, and that didn't, for me, make me any less valid. It just made my
1: experience different.
0: And I think that's important to know as well.
1: Right. I love that piece as well. I was kind of the same camp as you. I didn't have specifically like foods that made me afraid, but I had rules around certain foods mm-hmm. and limitations around foods, yes. like quantities and things like that. Yes. So those ki- that kind of like edges into food rules and how to challenge food rules as well. So if that comes up today, we could talk about that a little bit too. But I think you did a great job kind of setting the stage for us here. As far as challenging fear foods goes, when do you think it's the right time to have someone start challenging fear foods in recovery? Okay, so the first thing on my tongue was, when's not the right time to challenge fear foods?
0: But then my logical brain came in. I think It's very important to rule out any refeeding risk if that is what you're experiencing and you've come from a restrictive background. If not, you know, obviously, it's just making sure you're medically stable and regularly eating to start off.
1: Mm -hmm. I think
0: in my experience and how I work with clients, it's having that groundwork there already. So for instance, if one is not following a, regular kind of meal structure, it might not be the best time to start challenging all the fear foods because actually it's kind of like the baseline is not there. But let's say that the baseline is there and one is like eating regularly and enough, then I would start challenging fear foods as soon as possible because it
1: helps to rewire the brain sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. I think that regularity needs to be there, that adequacy needs to be there. And then you can start challenging the variety and all of the fear foods in that area. Because what I've found, and there are moments where people who aren't eating regularly will find it kind of fun and glamorous to challenge a fear food, but then they set themselves back because they end up restricting or compensating for trying that fear a little too early before they were ready Yeah, for sure. And you don't want to
0: create compensatory rules around fear foods being like, well, I can only challenge it if I don't have like my dinner or, you know, and and actually that only feeds the eating disorder further. So regularity is really important and not seeing it as, well, this is instead of.
1: Right, exactly. Yeah. I think with social media, there's so many influencers out there who are recovering and they'll be like, I ate this like Cheeseburgery thing. And like, it's the first time they've had it in a while, but you know, they're not eating regularly. And so you wonder, you know, what did they do to compensate for that? That's why the regularity is so important. But okay, let's talk about the tips that you have for challenging fear foods and feel free to just take up space with this. We can talk about them one tip at a time.
0: Okay. So, I use kind of an exposure and categorization method. You probably might do the same or similar. So what I would do with a client is ask them to kind of list their fear foods, as many as they can think of, even fear situations. But let's think about foods for this piece. And then I'd ask them to categorize it into three categories. So you've got the most scary column, the middle scary column, and then the least scary column. And then I'll ask them to number them. So for instance, in, you know, in each three column, one to 10, which seems the most scary in this, you know, Mm -hmm. give it a rating. And so, you know, to be kind and fair, we'd start with the least scary. And then we'd start actually with the number one. So the number ones would be the most manageable. So let's, for instance, if number one was brown rice, I'm taking, I'm picking some from thin air. I'd then say, okay, let's set a time and a date where we're going to challenge it. When are we going to put in this fear food challenge? Then I've got kind of like a step-by-step guide to go through. Mm -hmm. And that would be you rate your subjective fear that you think you're going to fear before, during, and after. So you actually rate your fear after doing it and then you try and line up your prediction to what actually the fear was that you felt. Mm And then put like a reflection of actually how did this get on. With all of that, it would be maintaining mindfulness techniques, breathing techniques, and having a positive distraction to do during or after. I much prefer after because we're trying to create a mindful eating environment when you can eat these fears without, you know, compensating in distraction activities. And I wouldn't ever say, well, you've tried it once. Now it's ticked off the list that wouldn't be the case. It would be, okay, how do we incorporate this to be a kind of, once you've done it, let's do it again. Challenge, repeat, challenge, repeat, but we then add other things from the list.
1: So Mm. for instance,
0: in one client session, you could set two challenges. The next week it's like, okay, like how do we incorporate these challenges and then add something else in? Mm. Then kind of have this rolling snowball effect. And the goal is that, you know, and eventually the fears that were not once there will be eradicated and it will just be a neutral food.
1: Mm-mm. I love the little ranking system that you've created. I've heard categories. I like how you're ranking it within the categories. And then you also mention predictions of how scared you're going to feel like you think you're going to feel versus how scared you actually feel. And overall, what are the results of those assessments? I
0: think the reason that I do that is it's like a positive reframing exercise because a lot of the time when I'm speaking with clients, it's trying to get them to reframe a thought within themselves. So for instance, you know, I feel big today. It's like, okay, but what's an alternative argument for that? But actually by having evidence that's like black and white, it's like they can literally see. okay, I feared the worst outcome, you know, would happen. I thought I'd feel super scared, but actually in actuality, it wasn't as bad as you thought. So therefore it gives them evidence to back up. Actually, the next time I do this, it's not as bad as I thought it would be. So therefore that reframing or an alternative thought is already created for you. It's
1: real rather than imagined. Mm, that's, I think that's such a great way to kind of battle the eating disorder, right, is building evidence against the claim, which I think we talked about on your show when we challenged eating disorder voice. So that's brilliant. When it comes to challenging a fear food in general, what are some of the key components around challenging fear foods that might often be overlooked?
0: I think the environment is really important. A lot of the times, you know, the people that we're with or the time of the day or the situation actually plays a big part into the first kind of times that you're challenging a fear food. I know for me, environmental setup is very important and it will continue to be for the rest of my life, I think, about having something that feels safe, you know, being in a place that you feel that you can express your true self and that you're not going to be judged and that you have a compassionate person around you. So, you know, set yourself up in a time that's not maybe the first time in a busy restaurant environment you're in your home, in your dining room with your, you know, a loved one or your parent or carer, et cetera. And I would always say have somebody as well being around you. I think positive as long as you, you know, obviously some people don't have that person and that's totally fine, you know, but have somebody you can reach out to at least to know you've got somebody there as a support person because challenging the fears, alone can feel very isolating and your eating disorder can make
1: you back out. Mm, So true. Having that person there will help a little bit more with accountability too. For sure. Mm, mm, Love that. You also mentioned self-care. Why do you think that's important when it comes to integrating that into challenging fear foods? I think because one does not realize how emotionally
0: taxing it is to challenge their own mind. And Mm -hmm. especially when it comes to foods, because I think, you know, you're consuming something that, you know, you've actually seen as a threat, which is going to cause anxiety. You know, I remember in the early days, I was like, not only exhausted from recovery, but exhausted from the fact that I was challenging so much. It was a hard work. Mm -hmm. So actually incorporating self-care just ensures that you can, you know, replenish your energy stores, not necessarily, I'm not talking about nutritional energy stores, I'm talking about mental energy stores here, um, as well as physical, obviously. But yeah, it's really important to have something that you can lean back on, be that mindfulness activities, coloring, you know, having a bath, reading a book, you know, sitting in nature, using tools that can feel more grounded.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I feel like those self-care tools are kind of like burnout prevention tactics, right? Like recovery is so mentally draining, physically draining, but mentally you can feel exhausted. And if you're not feeling your best, it's so much harder to keep challenging yourself. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. So also I'm very curious and let me know your thoughts on this, but I have so many clients who are sometimes afraid to challenge themselves because they're afraid of quote, unquote, failing, right? And so sometimes there are moments where people set a challenge for themselves with food and they don't necessarily eat the food or reach the goal. And what do you have to say to people who maybe feel like they fail the challenge? Failure is a mark of success. I know that sounds bizarre,
0: but we as humans will all fail at times in our lives, either professionally or personally. And failure just means that you can get back on the horse and do something better the next time. And even if you have that mindset of, I failed, what's the point? It's actually thinking, you made the first intention to challenge it. So that is a win in itself. And okay, you know that's not the goal and it's not seeing it as a setback. It's saying, okay, the next time I do it, I know why I did, you know, struggle to meet the goal is thinking, what can I do better next time? And with every failure, I don't like to call it a failure because I don't think there is failures. I think there's setbacks and challenges. With every setback, it's thinking, okay, this is going to propel me further. And can I do better next time? And what needs to be in place for me to be able to achieve my goal
1: next time? Mm -hmm. I think that's one lesson I learned in recovery so clearly was that there is no such thing really as failure i'm pretty comfortable with the word failure to be honest like i could like look at something and be like okay that was kind of a failed attempt at least in my world i know some people are really uncomfortable with that concept but it did teach me that failure is merely feedback right it is an opportunity for information and so when i have a client who is struggling with a challenge or cannot get past like a certain goal that we've set. It's just a moment where we can kind of go back to the drawing board and say, okay, so what do you think triggered you this time? Or how can we do that differently? Or what can we do in advance to make sure that you feel safer or more calm in this moment or more capable in this moment? And it's actually kind of a fun process to kind of revise your plans. Definitely. A
0: thousand percent agree with that. I think it, it, you know, it gives you feedback and knowledge and evidence of maybe what you could do better next time. And I think of failures or setbacks within a work context now thinking, okay, nothing fails, but you learn, you know, it Mm -hmm. might've been a failure Mm -hmm. at the time, but actually there's
1: a reason that this happened. And what can I do better next time? What do you think are some of the most common hang-ups when it comes to challenging a fear food? And hang-ups you define as? Things that like trip people up or get in someone's way. Like we were just talking about failures, like things that make it really hard to succeed in the challenge. I think there's
0: two big things. Number one, social media. There's a lot of contradicting evidence and messaging on social media. Some places you'd find, you know, recovery accounts promoting, challenging all of the potential fear foods you might have. But then there's other accounts and dieting accounts, fitness accounts that are saying, you know, clean eating, no bad foods, all of this negative kind of messaging around good and bad foods, which... You know, I'm very much against because all foods can fit and should fit. So I think social media, I would always try and stay clear of any dieting mm-hmm. pages or even recovery pages to some extent, you know, for somebody who, you know, I really advocate following body positive or recovery positive accounts. But if you feel like you are getting triggered by anything, you know, there is a way to remove that. And it's either unfollowing or just staying off social media when doing a fear food challenge, I think that would be my recommendation is to have some time off your phone before doing it. And the other thing is also kind of diet talk and it's being careful with who you're around because, you know, for instance, some individuals can demonize certain foods more from probably their own negative influence from the media, you know, and it's being careful that you're surrounding yourself with positive influences When you're in this early stage of recovery, because it is a very vulnerable
1: and precious time. Mm, So true. Really good points there. I think social media gives us this idea of what a food challenge should look like, right? Or like what you need to be doing in order to be recovering. But the truth is your recovery is going to be so unique to you. Like we said, everyone's fear food is so different. Your recovery is going to be so unique to you. You have your own unique recovery team that's going to help you pave the path. Like, so I can see how social media would be a hang up, especially if you're not clear on, like, my needs are going to be different than other folks' needs. Definitely. And I think it's reminding yourself of that is you are your own person.
0: Your recovery is your journey. Don't let anyone else tell you otherwise.
1: Yes. Oh, such a good reminder there. Keandra, I love that one. So you touched on this a little bit before as well, but could you please explain the value of repetition when it comes to challenging a fear of food? Repetition is
0: so important within a habit creation or even getting over a food that you don't like. I remember my mom when I was young, and I can't believe this now, I didn't like avocados. I hated them. I was like, no, these are gross. And that was just a preference thing. And she said, well, you've got to try it seven times. And after the seventh time, you'll like it. And, you know, growing up, I absolutely adore avocados. Now they are just heaven. However, with anything, when you're creating a habit, if you do it once, your brain does not have enough time to, you know, create the habit or get into a routine. It's like anything. We need to do things time and time again to rewire the brain. So if you challenge your fear food once and then leave it a month, Chances are the fear will still be there or you'll develop it, you know, another fear surrounding it. So when it comes to doing anything, our brain needs to be reminded of why it's not scary. So regularly doing something just help us to feel secure that it's not, you know, the world's not going to end. You know, for, for whatever reason you have the fear, you know, it's like with anything, it's exposure therapy. You know, it's the principles of exposure therapy. You do it once, you repeat it because eventually that will not be scary anymore because you'll be proving to your brain that it's not a threat.
1: Mm -hmm. I love that. I personally love it when I can see my clients like menu of safe foods expand, right? It's like they come to me only having a few foods that they feel comfortable with. And then after doing repetitive challenges, that list expands. And that's really one of the more fulfilling moments is like recognizing that this person doesn't have to be stuck with the same handful of foods for the rest of their life, which maybe they thought they were at one exactly. point. Exactly. And it gives hope, you know, because food is there to be
0: enjoyed. And there is a range of foods there to be enjoyed. And like I said, you don't need to force yourself anymore to eat your safe foods or your, you know, fear foods, because all foods are just going to be in like incorporated into your day. And it just feels easy So there's no like force or management of a diet. It's like, okay, I'm allowed to have like the office cake or I'm allowed to go out for dinner and have my favorite pasta dish without, you know, compensation or thought around this is a fear anymore.
1: I love that. And I think that's an indicator that you're healing, right? Is when the food stop being so emotional, right? And they're just this neutral experience that you have someone, you know, when I was sick, if someone came into the office with birthday cake, you know, you get a little angry or frustrated or annoyed that they could even have the audacity to, like, give you some food without permission, you know, without yes. planning. And, like, that exact experience turns into a very neutral day-to-day One where if someone brought in cake for the office, you're just like, great, I can take it or I can leave it. It's no big deal. It's there, looks delicious. Am I in the mood for it or not? And hopefully you can approach it in that really neutral way.
0: Yeah, for sure. And that's the principle of normal and intuitive eating. You know, you don't have to eat it, but if you want to and that, you know, you can start to appreciate your natural desires without fear.
1: Yeah, yeah. I feel like when you're recovered the main emotion you should feel around food is like joy. Joy. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Oh my gosh. We said it at the same time. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Jinx, you owe me a
0: soda. I I just have to fly, fly over.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know if you knew about that term or not,
0: that little... Funny. There's one in that I know is like jinx, padlock, you're it. That was a UK thing. If you're listening from the UK, maybe that's just me, but
1: <laughs> that's so cute. Yes, I think joy is the main emotion around food. And then there's neutrality, mm-hmm. right? There are some other emotions in there, but it shouldn't be this roller coaster of fear and panic and sadness or loss or guilt, you know, yeah. n- insert any negative emotion really yeah. should just be it's nourishment absolutely 100% all right kiandra this has been a lovely episode and for all of the listeners out there who want to get in touch with you is there any way they can do that if so how and also is there anything you'd like to share that's upcoming for you. So I'm on social
0: media and my handle is Flourish with Kiandra. I'm sure Meg will leave it in the description. My name is hard to pronounce and spell, but that is on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and TikTok. I also have my own podcast, which Meg was on, and that's called um, Recover to Flourish, which I go over kind of not only solar cast, but also I have guests on about a wide variety of eating disorder recovery experiences. I am an eating disorder recovery coach myself. I offer one-on-one coaching at the moment. My wait list is full, unfortunately, but I will be bringing out group coaching in the next three to six months. So it will be a more affordable and accessible way to access coaching. And so keep your eyes on my socials for that. because It's super exciting.
1: Amazing! Well, Keandra, I think you are a magical social media fairy. Like everything you post is just wonderful. I think you're such a positive light in the recovery space, especially online. So all the listeners, I hope you go on and follow Kiandra because you're going to learn a lot from her page. And Kiandra, again, thank you so much for being on the show today. You are just the best. And I'm so glad we got to connect. And thank you again. Thank you so much, Meg. I
0: I just appreciate your light and positive vibes all the time. It makes me so happy to have this experience. And I'm just happy that it's sunny outside. It's nearly 8pm here in the UK and we've got light, which is just joyful. So, you know, thank you. Thank you again. I hope you all enjoy listening. Amazing. Well, you go enjoy that
1: sunshine. I hope you have a beautiful night. Thank you, my love. (laughs) Bye.